of course I'm competitive with the other people in the race, but the person I'm the most competitive with is myself because that's the person that's me. That's the closest competitor to me is me and what I've done before. And I know that bar. I know I want to go out there and beat myself. And eventually there's going to be a point where you, as we age, where you won't be able to do that, but you can still give your maximum effort and maximum ability every time you go out there. And welcome back to the Ultra Running Guys. You've got Jeremy Reynolds and Jeff Winchester of the Ultra Running Guys. To all our uh, just extended family who's listening, thank you for taking the time. We're so grateful for you. Um, and as a lot of you know, the reason that we are here is to help you take your next step in your ultra running journey. Um, and tonight's guest, I think, is just going to be so key into helping with that aspect. So this one's going to be kind of a big introduction. That's because he's taken a lot of steps in that ultra running journey. He's taken a lot of steps. So hopefully he can help us with ours. So I'm going to kind of kind of run through it and invite him on and then we're going to have a great discussion. Mm. So our guest tonight is the founder of Run It Fast. You may have heard that before. Ray Berlanga talked about it, you know, during his episode. This guy has run 274 marathons slash ultras. That's a lot. It's, and, and what's more impressive, so the average out of those is 50.7 miles. And we did the math. 50, an average of 50 miles for 270 races is 13,892 miles over Thanks. those, those 270. In, in races, that's not training. That's not just out there fun for run. Nah. So paid, that's paid miles. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're going to digest that. Um, has also, this is the first person I think we've talked to that has done over a 200 mile effort, Vol State 500K. So 105 Ks, uh, you know, essentially it's 312 miles, I believe. He can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but then also our last guest, if you were listening, Chris Kosman from Badwater 135, world's toughest foot race. Uh, our guest tonight just completed his seventh Badwater finish. And so with that, Joshua Holmes, man, we are so honored. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, thank you. I appreciate the invite. I'm honored to be here and share all my mistakes with you guys. <laughs> well, and that's a, <laughs> over 274 of them things. There's going to be a lot of mistakes. I was, was going to say, there's probably <laughs> some great learning. And, that, and that's where we, there, there's some specific things we want to talk into you because we've learned a little bit about you. have done some research and know a little bit part of your story. But let's start here. We were talking 274 marathons, ultras, all those miles. You must have been running the moment you came out of the womb. Right. <laughs> although, although I know that that's, that's not quite true, but take us back. I want to hear the story. Um, and we actually almost launched into it kind of right before we started and we had to stop them and say, Hey, let's talk about this during the show. I want to hear your story about your first marathon. What drew you to it? And let's hear a little bit about that experience before we get into who we're talking to now. All right. That's cool. Uh, I've always been an athlete. I, I ran track in ninth grade in high school. And then I, I was forced to transfer to a school that didn't have track but I played basketball when I was in law school we were playing against the LSU football team and track team during our meal so it was didn't seem like a fair match on the surface but uh, we had a lot of fun playing that's kind of where I really started to run when I was down there because I was in law school and it was either you know go to the library and study for six or seven hours a night or there was these two big lakes in front of the sorority houses where you could run so I usually went there and 
ran for a few hours instead of studying and we'd it, go work it out. It seems timely and convenient. It, it must have been the lakes. I'm sure it was in. all the water. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that good uh, bayou still water, you know, just <laughs> good smell coming off of it. Nothing to do with the sorority houses. It was actually good for my brain to just get out and detox and do something besides law. So I ran a 5K at some point when I was in law school uh, with some friends there. And I started talking to this woman out in California. And I was, I was working at my dad's law firm. And some people's parents are like more lenient. And then some of them are like treat you more harsh because they don't want to show favoritism. Well, that's kind of how my dad was, <laughs> even though I was a lawyer there. So I didn't feel like asking him for time off to go see a chick out in California. So I was like, there's a marathon I want to do out in San Diego. And I want to train and go do it. And he's like, you know, that sounds cool. You know, he, he agreed for me to do that. So that was my first marathon was doing that. I trained, came out to California, didn't know what I was doing. It was like 2004, the early days of the internet. You couldn't, there wasn't all these groups and Facebook and all the stuff to learn how to do it. There was a couple right. of websites. So, and a lot of people who know me have heard these stories, but you know, I read somewhere that you needed salt for a marathon. So I went to McDonald's and got like the salt packets, <laughs> you know, the paper salt packets. Oh so, yeah, that's awesome. Like 18 miles into the race when I went to get them out of my uh, <laughs> board shorts, since I knew what I was doing, they were all wet, you know, so like there was no salt. I was having to like eat the paper to get salt off of them and everything. Um, and, you know, I bought some $35 Nikes from Shoe Carnival that were probably defective to start with and uh, board shorts, wife beater, uh, not the way I would do it now. I finished the race, uh, and but I lost like all 10 toenails within two weeks. So I didn't, I blame the shoes, but I still have that issue sometimes. I was going to say, man, the reason I think that's such a good story, um, and, and you kind of, right before we started, I think that's why you started to go into it. Because I'm sure at the level you're at, you get so many people that go, oh my gosh, I can never do what you do. And these things, and they put you on a pedestal, which you've earned. Right. But I think the point is, a lot of people, like I said, a lot of our audience is looking at their first 50K, right? And saying, can I do that? And they, they're going to look at a guy like you and go, yep, uh, he's got something different than I do. To hear that story, you show up in, you know, bad shoes, uh, your board shorts and white beater and lose all 10 toenails. And I'm assuming probably suffered through a good amount of it. I think it makes you so relatable. And so that's part of the reason, you know, we wanted to hear that. So, but were you happy with your finish? Yeah, I mean, I ran, I didn't have a much of an expectation i mean this is before i had a gps watch and i was training with like i was driving my truck out to mark distances and stuff you know and in training which I, I some people probably still do but i didn't know what to expect i wanted to finish it and um i ran a 339 which i was pleased with uh that's pretty good yeah marathon. that's real good <laughs> <laughs> but the reason i was another reason i was kind of drawn in to do my first marathon is i was at i was still working at my dad's office before this and he took the the whole everyone in the office down to Orlando for a week. We went to Disney World and we happened to be walking into the park when the Disney World Marathon was going on. It must've been when the six and seven hour finishers were going through where we walked through and I saw these people and they inspired. And I was like, if, if they can do it, then I can do it. And I think oftentimes it's just knowing someone who's done it, mm -hmm. no matter who they are, or what their background is to give you confidence or faith that you can at least attempt it. I, I personally, I'm going to go on a side here. I love the story about the, the salt packets. And, and the reason being, when you said it, I immediately went back to my first uh, early days when I got involved in doing like endurance sports, I was doing Spartan races and stuff. And I was dealing with cramping all the time. And I remember going to like Chick-fil-A and stuff and getting mustard packets, mustard packets and yeah. trying to eat mustard packets to prevent cramping. And that's what everybody did. 
it's, and so you said the salt packets and they're fall, they're dissolving. And I'm thinking the first time I tried a mustard packet is I'm on a race and about choked to death on the stupid thing. <laughs> so, there is yeah. a there is a skill to downing a mustard packet while you're running. Good but, grief, it's horrible. <laughs> I still I still have to chase uh, gels with fluid. I can't do a gel straight. Mm -hmm. They're rough for sure. You know, the thing that you said is you, you saw somebody that inspired you that you said, Hey, if I, if they can do that, I can do that. Um, I think one of the biggest ways you've made a name for yourself outside of just the running that you've done is what you've done with run it fast. And so we are huge on building community. Um, it, it's really at the core of why we're doing a podcast in the first place. And so I'm very interested in what was the inspiration for run it fast. And, and then kind of dig into the benefits that, that your runners see how has that, you know, even helped you or transformed you? Mm -hmm. um, so tell us how that all started. Well, I was living, when I started doing all my uh, marathons and when I really got into the sport, I was living in Jackson, Tennessee, which is my hometown. I've lived there for 30 years of my life, currently in Los Angeles. Like when I was growing up there, I saw two people like my whole childhood run outdoors. Like they were, and there was the same two people I would see. And one, one happened to be my youth minister at church who I'm still really good friends with. I talked to him weekly and he was the first person from my hometown to do the Boston marathon. And he went to Kona, did Ironman. So it was actually, there's gonna be two people. One of them happened to be my youth minister growing up and we're still friends. So it's, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. But on the downside, there was no one I could talk to about anything. There was a local uh, Roadrunners club at the time. That's actually now, uh, they do a good job in the community there. But when I was living there, it was a dead club. Basically they would go in time five K's and that's all they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've done dozens of five K's and dozens of marathons and never been approached about the, there was a running club there. I did a lot of five K's there in Jackson. I'd see the same people all the time. And when I started doing marathons and stuff, those people saw that, you know, they were competitive with me or just saw me at a five K and they, they would say, Hey, you know, if Josh is doing that, then, you know, we can probably go do a marathon or a half marathon. And, a lot of those five carriers would start doing marathons because I don't know, because I did or whatnot, but I was just curious. I was, I was, I'd done about 12 marathons and I remember I was sitting in my office there in Jackson. I Googled, can you run beyond a marathon or beyond 26 miles? Cause I didn't know anyone who'd done it. And for some reason, this, well, probably Google's crazy stalking algorithm. This race, the strolling gym 40 miler in Wartrace, race, Tennessee came up, which was mm -hmm. a couple hours away. And that's a race by Lazarus Lake and, this was back in 2010 before Laz was a superstar, but he was like this mythical creature that no one had ever seen a photo of either. I mean, it was like way before who he is now. And he was known as being this crazy, you know, kind of his reputation now, crazy, puts on these crazy events, but no one knew who he was. Half the people were scared of him because they'd never seen him. <laughs> so I signed up for the 40 miler and I drove there, didn't know anyone at the pasta, you know, I didn't know anyone there. And I didn't know if I could do the race. I mean, finish the race, but it was just one of those things, you know, you just keep going and, and I'm always, I'm a big numbers guy and they say it's the strolling gym 40 miler. So I like had this all dialed in to, you know, my gels and everything. I was gonna be done at 40 miles. That's when I was supposed to cross the finish line. And then I find out when you get to the 40 mile mark, it says like two miles, take a right two miles to the finish. So it was like, a, <laughs> I think it was like 41.2 miles. So it was right. like my first lesson in ultras, my first lesson in lazism, you know, laz is always gonna, nothing's going to be accurate and it's going to be longer and shorter um but i finished the 40 miler and it it had lit something within me that i was you know this is cool and um of course when i again, i'm sure i posted about it on facebook or whatever and people were like you know 
in my small circle at the time, which is not what it is now, everybody's like, there's nobody who's done any of this stuff. I'm like, wow, listen, that's so cool. How do you do that? It's impossible or whatever. I'm, and I'm thinking inside to myself, I'm like, it was hard, but it wasn't impossible. Right. And um, then I was curious about a 50 miler and I did the uh, Lookout Mountain 50 miler in Chattanooga, which was a trail race. Uh, I think it was a 13 and a half hour cutoff and I finished it in over 13 hours, like next to last place or something. So I'd been so great at that distance. I was like, let's do a hundred miler. I was trying to find a fast, you know, a fast course, you know, not a difficult course for a hundred miler. And I wanted the weather to be warm. So I didn't have to pack. I hate running in the cold. <laughs> I, found the, I found the Rocky raccoon down in uh, Texas hmm. and I show up to the race and they're having a record low, literally 18 degrees at the start. They have all these wooden bridges there. And of course they'd all frozen over. <laughs> One of the uh, elite women fell on the bridge five miles in and broke her leg. Holy cow. Yeah, it was scary uh, for her. I mean, I didn't slip like that. But when I started doing trails, I was also a horrible trail runner. I'd, I'd fall, I'd trip and fall all the time. And uh, Rocky Raccoon, if y'all know anything about it, it's got like 10 billion roots. It's one of the <laughs> gnarliest, rudiest courses outside of, probably the side of Hurt. I kept having things happen, happen to go wrong. I had a hip pointer, something with uh, my knee. And then from kicking all those roots, both my ankles were swollen about like this, 50 miles in. Mm. And I was like, this isn't good. But every step beyond 50 miles, I viewed as this is my personal long. And as long as I could take another step, I was going to keep going. You know, it was painful and slow. I was walking. So 30-hour cutoff, I finished 29.49, 29.47, like 13 nice. minutes worth cutoff. You know, it's bad when you come across the finish line and you're running across the inflatable because they've already taken the inflatable finish line down. <laughs> Time to pack up. I feel like I can relate to him. <laughs> <laughs> and there was this girl, this, this woman on the course, I'd met her like 25, she was having a horrible day. She she had a couple of meltdowns out there. So I kind of, we stuck together. I didn't know what I was doing. And we like walked really slowly these last 20 miles to finish. And she, like 50, I felt like I'd carried her for a lot of the last part. And now I wasn't carrying anyone, but you know, it's just this, and then 50, about 50 yards from the start, she's taking off sprinting to beat me. I'm like, oh, no, we're going to do this. <laughs> and uh, so did you take her? I crossed the finish line before she did, but she's ahead of me in the standings. So oh, I don't That's got to hurt a little bit. No, I didn't hurt. I was, I was just I was just so happy. to. I was literally so happy to finish. I'm sure. <laughs> and then I said I made the mistake of sitting down for literally two minutes. My buddy went down to do the race with me. And uh, when we got up to walk to the car, which was like a tenth of a mile away, it took 35 minutes to walk there. It was something stupid. I love the fact that she took off and you chose to beat her. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just be honest with ourselves for a I second. Mean, I'm going to beat her. Awesome. I, th I think it was more of a sense of betrayal than anything. I thought, you know, <laughs> hey, we we're going to sing songs and cross the finish line together. And she took off. And I was like, <laughs> she probably had a plan too. for the last four miles, too. It's just, like, okay, I'm going to keep them close. I'm not going to be last. <laughs> oh, again, I, I, again, I was so proficient and so great at the 100 mile distance. That two weeks later, I signed up for the five, the Ball State 500K. <laughs> so, so in that order, so like you literally, this would have been your fourth ultra at that point was the Ball State um, 500. Yeah, yeah, I signed up for that. I probably did. Um, so Rocky Raccoon was in February. I mean, uh, All States in July. Yeah. In between there, I did, I did uh, Strolling Jim 40 miler again. I did the Ruts 10 hour again. I did a couple races to kind of okay, amp up okay. for it, but I signed up for it right after a couple weeks after Rocky Raccoon. Jeez. So that's insane. We're going to talk about the Vol State because to me, it's just, we want to know so much about it because it's a different animal. Um, but there's one thing that I keyed in on, and then I'm going to have to ask a personal question. 
one of the things that, that just jumped out and it also reminded me of something that, that Ray said, and again, Ray Berlinga is actually the first time that, that I heard your name, but you said, I got to the point and for me, it was my personal long. And so I'm just going to see how far I can go. I think a lot of people would flip that, right? Oh, I've already made it this far. I'm suffering. I've already set a PR. Let's call it a day. Right. Um, and Ray kind of had put it with, let's see what could happen versus, you know, oh, I don't think it could happen. Mm -hmm. wow. I think that, I think it's really insightful is, is that well, I'm guessing that's something that you look at like that a lot. Well, the way I felt about the, that hundred mile, my first hundred miler was every step beyond that was a personal long, but I also thought I knew it would eat at me that I would have to finish one. And I knew that to do that, if I quit, I'd have to start over from zero miles and get back to 50, 51, 55, 60, and so on. So I wanted to put, put that baby to bed so I never had to deal with it again. And, but I didn't know that it was going to turn into 50-something, 100 milers since then. <laughs> so it might have been better to just DNF and say, hey, I suck at this and never do tennis. it again. Yeah. <laughs> and so then the other thing I want to bring up, you mentioned Laz. Um, I'm guessing most people know who he is, but if you don't, uh, he's, you know, the mastermind behind the Barkley marathons. And if you don't know that, go find on Netflix, your head will explode. Also in the thing that's been really big and that I'm into as well is the backyard ultras. Laz is the one that started out with big dogs. And I think if I heard right, you've got a pretty close connection. Did you have the second backyard ultra? Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I started, uh, the trail of fears. He started, uh, his race started in, I believe October of 2012. And then I started the Trail of Fears in December of 2012, three months later. And it was the first one. And it's actually the longest continuous running last runner standing because around 2016, he didn't host his race because of uh, storm damage to the trail. So, so he's got the longest continuous. Uh, I was say, we need to have running. like trading cards. He would be the. the <laughs> <laughs> I'm like the, the Cal Ripken. I'm, I guess that race is like the Cal Ripken Jr. Of, <laughs> so uh, you're still running that race. Yeah. That's awesome. Like I said, Laz has become such a superstar and the backyard races have become this worldwide crazy phenomenon. And uh, we had it as a gold ticket race a couple of years ago. And it brought, I mean, the race, my race always, it's a limited field of like, you know, 50, 50 or so runners. So it's a small field, but it, it sells out anyway. And we had it as a golden ticket two years ago, which, you know, if you're going, if you win that race, you get a ticket to his race. And then last year, well, last year was COVID. We had to reduce the field and just, we didn't deal with it. But, um, mm. This year, I didn't do all the paperwork, make it a golden ticket, because when I started the race, it was for the local community there. Right. To get these people that do 5Ks or whatever to come. And it's a great, it's a great, that whole setup's great for people who want to come out and see how far they can go without any pressure. Because if you finish a lap, well, my, mine's slightly different. If, to me, if you finish a lap at my race, you're a finish. We give you a medal if you finish one round mm. versus 15. You know, we, we treat everyone as a finisher. And then there's the winner's the last person standing. I, one reason I started that race there was for the local community to bring out these people to come out that might have only done a 10K or a half marathon. And his, we had a guy who showed up the first year who had only done a 10K and he did 50 miles. And he didn't show up to do 50 miles. He showed up to just see how his day went. But when, I, when it was a golden ticket race two years ago, it brought in a lot of people from outside of the area, which was good. It was, it was a little more competitive, but it blocked out a lot of the local people mm -hmm. um, because it was just such a limited number we can have. Now he has where you... It's silver ticket races. Like the United States right. has like X number of silver tickets. And then you win a silver ticket, you go to a United States gold ticket race and you can win the gold ticket race to go to his race. I just was happy with my event. So we didn't deal with the paperwork of dealing with that this year. 
but we do that one and also help out a buddy in Chattanooga put one on called the Cannonball, which is in October, middle of October every year. It's a pretty good, it's a tough trail. We don't switch to, uh, we don't switch to road at night like Laz's race. So it's a, oh wow, it's trail. So it's going to knock you out. You're not going to go for four days. Let, let me ask you a question. I'm just um, curious about this because you, you, you obviously emphasized um, the fact that you wanted this to be available for your local runners and your community and stuff. And this kind of mirrors your, your organization run it fast as well. Why is that so important to you to invite outsiders in? Like I told you earlier, I grew up playing basketball. Basketball is my first love, but I'm 43 years old. If I want to go play basketball, I've got to find six to nine other people who don't have to keep their kids, can get away from their spouse. Then if you can find a basketball court, it's all this complicated stuff to make a simple game of basketball happen. But if you want to run or become an endurance runner, you can just most 99% of people can go out their front door and do it. And to me, there's just, it's just, it's very simple. It's just a very simple sport. It's not complicated. And there's so many benefits that come from it beyond your accomplishments in the sport. And besides, you know, being physical as well, I think there's so much emotionally and mentally that you gain and it just re-cleanses, it cleanses your system. And there's such a benefit to that. When I grew up playing sports, you know, you have uh, in high school, there's like 12 people on the basketball team. Uh, if you have a volleyball team, there's 10. And then you have a lot of people who overlap and play the same sports. And then you have like 90% of the student body who never play any sports. They think they can't do it. They think they're not an athlete. Mm -hmm. And if you look at any ultra event or any marathon or even half marathon, if you go out and just do an eye test, you'd say half these people aren't athletes. And you know, what's an athlete? Who knows what that is? But a lot of people do an eye test with that. And you don't have to be an, an athlete. You don't have to have an athletic past to go out and be a runner or to develop into a runner or a power hiker or a power. We have lots of, uh, we have several people in Run It Fast who don't even run, but they're amazing power walkers like Yolanda Holder, who's got records. She's done sub 24 hour hundreds walking the whole thing. Wow. And it's just, I, I have to run to stay next to her. <laughs> she's walking. It's crazy. The first time I did the 500K, I posted about it on social media. I had so many people email me that say, hey, I saw that you could do a 500K and it got me off my couch because I thought, I said, if he can do a 500K, I can go around the block or I can do a 5K. And a lot of times people just need a spark to light their fire. But to so me, it's just, I've always wanted to be inclusive. Another thing that bugs me about our sport, uh, it's not a polite way to, it's a very white sport. And it's kind of like baseball in the, up until the 1940s with Jackie Robinson. And it's not, it's not a, there's a lot of factors and there's some studies that can be done on that for sure. A lot of it has to do with, I won't go into all of it, but we, we need to, in my opinion, reach out to people to bring more people into the sport. We need to be an even playing field for women. We need to be an even playing field for people of all ethnic backgrounds because we have people winning races that are going to win races, but are we always beating the best people that could be there? I don't always think so. We're beating the best of our best people in our neighborhood. Usually I hosted several virtual races last year during the pandemic and that was something that almost anybody could do. We had one that was a race across America where we had relay teams. We had like 15 people on a relay team. This is virtual, but it's just how many miles you could, there's no set amount, what you could do for your team, you did. And what we did, we had, we, the second, we did it one time, the second time we charged so we could have medals and stuff. But we had, we had a lot of people donate, we call it scholarships. We gave scholarships to people, uh, basically comped entries into the race, people who might not could have afforded to do it. Cool. We had a lot of people donate to make that possible for that. And some of those people in the short time span since this just last year, they've, I've seen them branch out and do other stuff in the sport, which is kind of cool. That's neat. Because the, the cost to entry, I mean, the barrier to entry to a lot of us 
it's expensive, but you know, it's, it's our passion. So we do it and it's what it is. You know, I don't have any other vices. So this is my vice. But for some people, the barrier to entry, you know, $130 pair of shoes, race entry fees are expensive, you know, getting there, hotels, all that stuff. And that's one reason, like with the, the race I was telling you about, I want it to be local to keep a lot of local runners there to keep trying to build that. It's actually one of my favorite things about the backyard, like you said, is that the guy that had done a 10K and then went to 50 miles, right? Like it's almost like a way to trick people into getting into ultras that don't think they can do ultras. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And we're actually, so we're putting on our first race in geez, two and a half weeks. And it's a essentially a last man standing kind of race, but it, it reduces, it's a 1.3 mile loop. And the thing that we're seeing, and part of the reason we did it is exactly what you're talking about, is to get people that go, oh, I can do 1.3 miles. And they come out and we're expecting to celebrate a lot of personal bests because it doesn't feel like, oh my God, 31 miles. You know, I got to go try to do that. The, the caveat is it's a 20 minute time limit for the first loop. And then every loop after that, the time gets faster by 15 yeah. seconds. So the, the first uh, three or four years I did my race, my trail of fears, after 10 hours, we started taking a minute off the clock every hour. Nice. And then when it became a golden ticket race for that one year in 2019, last didn't want that yeah. and made me change a couple of things but uh and it being a trail it just kind of eliminates anyway but it used to be fun because it would do that as well so i, I think it's a cool concept but i want to talk about the summer of suffering <laughs> well, i was going to tell him i loved his message but i'm sorry <laughs> we love your message but jeff really wants to talk about their summer of suffering all right can you tell him what that is <laughs> yeah so we've talked about uh you've just done a lot and so we tried to sort through and look at some different things and figure out where we could focus to maybe, you know, get some value for our listeners. Um, and we came across what we deemed the summer of suffering, which was 2015. You're doing the grand slam of hundreds. Now for anybody listening the grand slam, I think there's five different yeah, hundreds you can choose from, correct? Mm -hmm. But you do four of them yep. in a well, year. I think that's current. Back when I did it, you had, there was only four. You had to do the four uh, that I okay. did. And, and the four that I've got listed, the Western States Endurance Run, uh, you got the Vermont 100, Leadville 100, and the Wasatch 100. So to set this up, you not only did that, I'm going to, so everybody listen, listen to these dates because there was a, also a surprise in the middle, right? Like so an you, Oreo. <laughs> so you did the Western States 100 on June 27th. Vermont 100 on July 18th, so essentially three weeks later, 10 days after that, you did the Badwater 135, world's toughest foot race. For giggles. Followed by the Leadville 100 on August 15th, and then uh, essentially three to four weeks later, the Wasatch 100. But 10 days before all of that, you did, we, we were looking through your stuff. It looks like you did five consecutive trail marathons, I think. The jackals. Um, yeah. So the bottom line is you had so much running. That's why we call it the summer of suffering, right? Like it just seems like it was nonstop. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about just that period. And then we're going to talk specifically about Leadville in a minute um, because we, we think there's some good, you know, content there. How did you decide you're going to do the Grand Slam? What was that summer like? And then it just how, how do you manage the summer and all the physical and mental stresses that that would encompass from, from the moment of doing the five Jackal Marathons going straight into the summer of chaos? 
like I, we looked at an ultrasound and I'm thinking there's no way humanly possible without your head wanting to implode or your feet wanting to fall off. But there like, obviously is. It is because you've done it. You've made it seem possible. What was it like? Well, as y'all probably know, it's hard to get into Western states. Uh, and it was hard then. The, I've only I've applied every year for eight years. I've gotten in one year. Uh, so I got in that year and then I'd wanted I had a couple of buddies who had done the Grand Slam before. And I figured I wouldn't know when I'd get back into Western states or if I would be older in my running career and maybe not be able to do that much in a summer. So I figured that that was my chance to do the Grand Slam. Yeah. In the previous year, 2014, I'd done, I finally gotten into Badwald after three, three or four times, or probably two or three times applying. But it was the year of the alternate course when they wouldn't let the state, uh, the Death Valley National Park wouldn't let them use the park. So it was this hard 135 mile race, but it wasn't the traditional historic point to point race. Mm. I think Chris had promised everyone who did the alternate course that year they would get in the next year if they wanted, they applied and, and, and mortgaged their house and did a lot of things to be there. <laughs> true story <laughs> so i had this dilemma you know was i ever going to get back into western states i haven't yet and i wanted to do bad water was chris gonna let me back in and if i waited a year and not? i don't know so i just decided to go for it you know you know you just i didn't think it through when i decided to do it i just signed up for everything and i thought i'd just take it a, a piece at a time i started june with doing the 10-hour race in kentucky the ruts in early June, it's a 10 hour, I think I did 50 miles. You know, and then I host the Jackal marathons every June in Tennessee. It's five marathons in five days, which is not impossible to do. There's lots of race series like that, but it's in Tennessee in June. It's mm -hmm. extremely hot, extremely humid. They're brutal races. And I started doing those when I lived in Tennessee as I called it training camp for Vol State when I did Vol State. And then it became my training camp for Badwater because it's just if you can finish those five, I say if you can do those five in five days, it's harder than doing a hundred miler because you do this very hard marathon and you have to get up the next morning right. and go do it again and again and again. So I was in Tennessee for those for the Jackals and then I was traveling back to California. I had four or five days before Western States. My house here has 50 or 60 stairs to the front door. It's in the Hollywood Hills. So I'm carrying all our luggage up the stairs. And when I get up to the kitchen, after I, I noticed this lump in my, like, I like had this hernia pop. Ugh. It was like three days before, three days before my summer. Uh, so Western States was that last weekend in June. Mm -hmm. And I showed up there that I just extreme un uncomfortable feeling there from that hernia or whatever it was that had popped. And uh, so the first uh, four miles of Western States, I, I started the race with like, close to 0% confidence I would finish the race. That's how I was feeling about, just how my, I felt physically. And the first four miles there, it's, it's called, in, in, I forget what it's called, encampment or entrapment. You go up four miles up this mm -hmm. ski slope or whatever. So I went up there and when I got to the top of that floor, I looked behind me and there was like two people, two, two of the runners <laughs> in the race. And I was like, oh no, it's gonna be one of those. I, 15 miles in, I fell and busted my knee pretty well. And I was like, I can't, it's, it was it was painful, but I, I had that same mindset that I had at my first 100 miler. Can, can I still go forward? Yes. Was there a huge opportunity cost to be here? Yes. Uh, will I ever have a chance to be here again? I don't know. I didn't have a great race at Western States, but I did finish it. I finished in uh, a little over 28 hours, I believe. 
Yeah, I, I think I think when you said at the very beginning, um, when you were talking about even the first uh, maybe 15 miles into Western states, the fact that you started asking yourself, can you still go forward? But, but really the other question you were asking yourself is, not asking yourself, you were acknowledging the fact that this is a once in a lifetime opportunity that you've got. You had never been able to get into Western states. You had that and you weren't sure if you'd ever get in again because it's very difficult to get in. Um, you, this was also the year that you're gonna do your first bad water on the official course. You had all the plans to do the full Grand Slam. And so when you begin to look at the totality of the summer, you weren't just processing Western states, you were processing the entire summer. And I think that it's kind of like it's, a lot of people will, will train for a race and they're going to train that being their goal. You had um, this was one step of multiple steps of a summer. And so it's it's a bigger picture type goal. So you see this is getting through it differently than you would. Am I going to survive Western states in and of itself by, by just a simple race, one and a solo type event? For, it was for sure a big puzzle for me. It wasn't mm -hmm. just finishing Western States. And we'll talk about Leadville in a minute. But if I hadn't finished one of these races, it would have been a failure of a summer for me, even though if I had finished four of the other races, because that wasn't what I set out to do. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's what I was thinking when you were saying that, when you were evaluating yeah. Western States early on, is that you, you saw it as a, to, as a total event. And so I think that's a perfect leeway. So uh, for everybody listening, because, you know, we had sent you some information before and asked some questions and we asked about, hey, one of the questions we typically ask is, what has been your biggest low in a race? Because we all struggle with them. And so we, we like hearing people's input on how we deal with those situations. And you came back and said the 2015 led bill, which was part of this summer of suffering, right? So tell us, kind of put us in that situation with you kind of walk us through it and then tell one of the things that you said that really stood out to me is you said I had so much riding on that race and I think we just heard a little bit of it but walk us through that okay so after western states I did Vermont mm -hmm. I believe almost eight days before Badwater and so the hardest part Vermont it's a hundred mile there's no easy hundred mile races but the hardest part about Vermont during all that was getting from LA to Vermont and then back across the country just a few days before Badwater Man. And then trying to recover because I think Vermont starts at like 4 a.m. local time. But for me, that was like 1 a.m. L.A. time. So like everything was just getting thrown mm -hmm. off. So then I did Badwater after Ver I, I ran pretty well. at Ver I was sub 24 at Vermont. Uh, I, I could do I feel like I could do it a lot better just as a standalone race. But I had a good race considering what was going on. Badwater. I ran pretty well at that. I ran faster than I did on the alternate course the year before. So I was pretty pleased with that. And then, then there was Leadville in August and the race, you know, Leadville's average is at over 10,000 feet, the whole yeah. race, I believe. Yep. It goes up to 12 something. It mm -hmm. helps fast. Well, the two or three weeks leading up to it, probably not much different than right now. There was fires in California and all the ash from those fires had blown over to Colorado. So the air quality there was horrible. And then there was the altitude when I was a kid, I had really bad asthma and allergies. I had really bad asthma. And the doctors told my parents I should never, they told them I should never play outdoors. And my parents, my parents said, that's no way to live your childhood. And they let me play outdoors. And I paid the price for it a lot, being up late, late at nights with asthma and dealing with that and stuff. But as an adult, I'd outgrown, I mean, I thought I'd outgrown it until Leadville. Wow. And then I think it was the combination of the altitude, the ash in the air and all this stuff. So the first... 20 miles at Leadville, I ran pretty well. And then it was, got to where I couldn't breathe. And then for the last 80 miles of the race, I felt like I could only breathe about 15, 10 to 15% of my normal capacity. 
And then it has gotcha. the cutoffs there are pretty tight. So I put my headlamp at miles at Twin Lakes, which is mile 40 and mile 60. You hit it twice. Mm -hmm. That's where my headlamp was going to be. <laughs> so I go up to Hope's Pass. It's a tough uh, four or five miles up there. And then you go down to 50 at, I think, Wingfield. And then you turn around, you go back up Hope Pass, and then back down to Twin Lakes at 60. Well, I was just like having all the altitude issues. Uh, I couldn't breathe. My asthma was bothering me. Then the altitude of 12.5 was just horrible. So I'm at the top of Hope Pass trying to come back to Twin Lakes. And uh, it's getting dark. <laughs> it's getting really dark and I don't have a headlamp. And it's just, it's almost, it's basically pitch black. And one of these other runners pacers, he goes, he goes, hey, do you need a light? And I'm like, well, it's obviously dark. I can't see anything. He goes, <laughs> I go, I go, yeah, sure. So he, he goes, I got one for you. He pulls out, I don't know if you've ever seen like the, the keychain lights to like open your car door. Yeah. It's like a thumb light you push. He goes here. <laughs> and I was like, oh, thanks. You know, it's be better than what I had. So I did like five miles come down Hope Pass and that little thing. Did you have a hand cramp by the time you got done? Yeah. <laughs> I had every kind of cramp because I was trying not to trip. I was heavy pack, all this stuff. And then you get the two, it had rained like the week before. So the mile leading into back to Twin Lakes was like almost waist deep. So I'm waist deep in water with this light. Anyway, I make it to the mile 60 cutoff by like, think four minutes and, and she says no it's when you have to be out of here by that time so I, but i needed to like change socks get food go through my dry bag it's like luckily i knew another person a, a volunteer there and she helped me like change socks, do all the stuff and i ran back to the check lady and then i started doing the math of the last 40 miles and the checkpoints and i was just like i don't i never say much is impossible but i said this is this is probably going to be impossible to hit these checkpoints but i was like i haven't timed out yet I still have a chance. I have so much riding on this race. So I, the last five checkpoints of the race I made by, I believe, less than three minutes. My gosh. Four minutes. I came into May Queen at mile 87 with 90 seconds before the check, before the cutoff. So at 87, when I hit that checkpoint, I was, I was thinking the next checkpoint's the finish line. So you got 13 miles. And I was thinking I was safe, you know, hey, I'm not, I made that mile 87 cutoff. I'll be good. So I looked at my overall pace for the race and it was like 18 minutes and 20 seconds a mile. And then I did the math for what I needed the last 13 miles. And it was like 1505 a mile, like over three minutes faster. And I was like, I was like, I don't know how this is going to work. So like literally a mile into the starting that last 13 miles, I had to use the restroom and there was no, uh, there, I didn't have time to like go off way off trail or anything. So like I find a tree to lean up against, take care, like bury my business. And then half a mile later, I get lost. It's not marked oh. well. And I go the wrong way for like a third of a mile. And I finally like figured out I was going the wrong way. And luckily I turned around, got back on the right trail. I'm like, I feel like I'm like sprinting this whole time. It's probably, you know, it wasn't that fast. It was <laughs> around a 15 minute overall. I get close to town and there's this old man, they got people cheering on the side of the road. And this old man, he goes, uh, he goes, you're almost to the finish. It's just uh, two miles to the finish. I go, you, are you accurate on that? Cause I knew the math, you know, I knew it was going to be really close. He goes, yeah, down to the button. <laughs> Luckily, I didn't trust him because it ended up being about 2.7 miles, mm. about less than 30 yards from the finish line. I passed these two statues, these two other runners that are, they're not moving. And you, you know, it's bad when you see the race director with the shotgun because he's about to fire it that the race is over. <laughs> but they have so many people there cheering, like the people at races cheer the loudest for the winners and the people that finish at the very end. For sure. It was a very cool feeling. You have all these people there. It was a lot of adrenaline. 
I passed those last two people. I crossed the finish line and I had the best, I had this feeling I've never had finishing a race. It was like this, I can't even explain it. Just like this all throughout my body and my veins. It was this just amazing feeling and release of just like, I think it was because of doing something I thought was impossible 40 miles earlier and that I had done it. Uh, you know, probably how you feel like when you do something like really cool, like win the Super Bowl or something. <laughs> so I finished, there was two people who finished behind me in the race. And those were the two people I passed in the last 30 yards before yeah. the finish. And uh, 29 hours, 56 minutes and 10, uh, 19 seconds, less than four minutes from blowing the whole summer. So incredible. It reminds me of Ray's story. Yeah. So um, I actually really appreciate you sharing that because um, we've talked about our, our listeners and stuff. It's a, it's a new sport for some of them. And a lot of times, I mean, I'll make this even about me. I'll get into the race and I will look at my time and, and start doing the mental math and start freaking out way too soon. Um, you know, if you're at mile 60, I mean, just so everybody understands, there is a level of hurt that you're also experiencing at mile 60. You're not like feeling great, you're doing your mental math. I mean, you're, you're in some sort of level of pain. Plus asthma. And asthma, right. And so you ask yourself the question that, or you say to yourself, I haven't timed out yet. Um, I think when people are in physical discomfort and they start the mental math, that is the hard switch. That's, that's the hard thing to turn the corner on and say, you know what, even though I feel like crapping, even though it looks mathematically near impossible i haven't officially timed out yet so um why not just keep moving forward um and i think that's a, a great point that you're making there well in a lot of races like leadville and similar races like if you decide to quit at mile 60 or mile 70 or you you quit and then sometimes it takes you six hours for them to get you out of there back to the start line or back to where you park because you're in the middle of nowhere so you might as well be moving for those five or six hours and just see where you go or see how far you can go before you actually time out i've been very fortunate i've done uh, whatever 274 marathons and ultras i've, I've never dnf'd one yet um i had some close calls like leadville and i, I know it like most people it eventually happened but that's something that drives me as well it's just a i like to finish what i start and i know not everyone's wired like that there's probably some races where if i was being smart when i was really injured or something i probably should have quit but that was my goal is to finish what i start when i start something that's freaking incredible. I think 274 and not DNF in any of them. But there's a reason. Yeah. It's because you somehow mentally mm -hmm. are wired that if you're at mile 60 and you've got 40 and it feels impossible, you continue on where most people would Despite pull the how it feels. Mm -hmm. So you're you're still keeping yourself in the game where a lot of people wouldn't, which means your odds are better. But mm -hmm. what do you say to yourself? You you and because you um a few minutes ago talked about asking myself some of these questions. Right? Am I ready to, am, am I ever going to be here again? You kind of went through this process. Is there anything else you say to yourself? How do you process? What do you talk yourself through? Because I know me, like that voice is loud. That's telling me this is stupid. Yeah, in you the should, low times. You sure. should be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, during those low moments. How do you process that? Well, actually, I'll tell you what I tell a lot of people. I tell everyone, uh, every race has highs and lows. Every runner, every, you're going to go through lows. Uh, but your lows don't last forever. All you have to do is outlast your low and you have to be patient. You have to suffer. But if you can do that and if you can put the, pick the puzzle off the floor and put it back together, if you can figure out why you're at that low, what did you do wrong to get to that low? And it's usually, you know, uh, salt or hydration or you're not hydrated well. If you can put all that together, get the right formula back and, get, and be patient enough for it to come back around, you can outlast that low and get back to where you feel decent enough to finish. And I also say on the flip side, your highs don't last either. 
And when you have a high, you can usually run yourself into a low because you get very cocky and think you can run like that forever. And that's when you forget do the salt or the hydration or your nutrition. And you know, ideally your best runners, not your best, but your people who are really good at finishing stuff, they're good at keeping it in between those two lines where they're not too high and they're not too low and they just kind of bounce between them. I love the fact that you can be in your high and run yourself into your low. I think that's yeah. solid. But it, yeah, and also the other way around. You know, it, it reminds me, so we had, um, and I don't know, um, probably because of Badwater, Charlie Angle, if you remember him, Charlie. you know, he was one of our guests and he, his point, which I think is just a lot of similar logic was never make a decision in a high or a low, mm-hmm. you know, because they don't last. Uh, so, so for all the listeners, I think it's such an important point. And we've talked about it numerous times that when we're in a low, it feels like it's going to last forever, but your logic says, when I'm at mile 60 and I'm struggling and I have 40 miles to go, instead of thinking, oh my God, how am I going to do what I'm doing right now for the next 40 miles? You're focused on, I just got to beat the low. Outlast the low. Yeah, the mm-hmm. low will, it will come out of it. I just have to outlast it. And I think it's so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just go in, I also kind of, I go in with the mindset that there's only one way to the other side and that's through. Uh, you can't, I go on the, I'm going to finish the race and there's only one way I'm going to get there it's a lot of lying to yourself. It's a lot of lying to yourself over and over. If I get to that tree or that pole, I'm done. If I get, and then you get there and you're like, no, I'm at the next one. And you just keep doing it over and over again. And the, you just have to be dumb enough to believe yourself every time you lie to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty stupid. So that's that good work for me right now. I'm liking that. So, uh, you know, talking about, I, don't, I won't call it dumb, right? But talking about telling yourself about, about things. Let's transition. I know we're getting a little bit short on time, but I, I want to get it in. Because like I said at the beginning, you mentioned the Vol State 500. So it's 500K. And it was one of your earlier races that, that you've, done, you've done it multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to get that in. Talk us through one, if you can just kind of explain the race quickly. And then I'm interested in, uh, I've got some numbers, but I'm same thing. I'm interested in how and why and that kind of thing. Yeah. But tell us real quick, uh, the what two is minute it? description. Yeah, what is the Vol State? Uh, it's a race that, again, Lazarus Lake, Gary Cantrell started 25 years ago, probably. He started in Dorena, Dorena Landing, Missouri, just on the other side of the Mississippi River. So you actually, it, the race basically starts in Hickman, Kentucky. You park there, you get on a ferry boat across to uh, Missouri there. You get out 10 feet into Missouri. You wait for Laz to light a cigarette. You run back onto the ferry. So your first two miles are free as you sit on the ferry. And then you get out in Hickman, Kentucky when the race, and the race has already started, the time's already started, but that's when it really kind of starts. You do about the next 12 miles through Kentucky, the next 290 through Tennessee, then you dip down into Alabama, and then you finish in Georgia, the last two miles through a corn or soy field and finish atop this, in the middle of nowhere, overlooking the Tennessee River in this field. 314 miles. I mean, it, it sounds insane. And then when I first did it in 2010, there was uh, about 15 of us that started the race. The prior year, there had been about seven. Now the race sells out in, in 10 minutes. He limits it to about 150 people, but it's a, it sells out all the time. now. And you can do it either crude or screwed, as he calls it. I've, done it. I've done it crude when I've done it. Most people actually do it screwed where they carry all their crap the whole way. There's Dollar Generals and all kinds of stores where they you know, replenish their supplies and stuff, but it's just an epic adventure. It's hard to call it a race. It's more of an adventure. Uh, The first time I did it, when there was 15 of us, I went three days without seeing another runner in the race. 
I mean, it was just, you're just in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but it's a great way. I say it's a great way to see the entire state of Tennessee at a, at a snail's pace because it is. <laughs> and you, you soak in so much. You see so much. And you're going to go through some major, major pain and suffering during the race, no matter if you're winning the race or you're the last person. If you're the last person in the race. You're out there for 10 days. There's 10 day, a 10-day cutoff. And there's no cutoffs in between, but you have 10 days to finish the race. So you need to average a 50K a day which <clears throat> sounds easy until you remember it's Tennessee in July. It's hot, humid, you're on asphalt. You're dealing with traffic the whole time and trying to not get hit by semis and all that stuff. And uh, you're going to have blisters. You're going to have chafing. You're going to have to deal with that stuff. And sometimes you're going to be dealing with it for the last 250 miles, which is not easy. Yeah, a 50K a day does not sound easy for 10 days to me. I'm going to echo what he just said. Sometimes you have to deal with it for the last 250 miles. Yeah, chafing. Any, any, it doesn't matter what it well, is. Well, the, the first year I did it, I thought I knew what I was doing. I had a crew. I was actually on the ferry that year, and Laz, the first time I met Laz was 2011. Uh -huh. And I'm on the ferry, and my, uh, I was, there was two other runners. We were talking. Laz comes over. He goes, look to the person to your left and to your right. And he goes, one of y'all is going to finish this race. <laughs> and I, I knew he was not thinking I was going to be one of them, just going based on appearance. Because there was some rugged, veteran-looking people next to me. Uh, and then I had my 15-year-old uh, cousin and his 18-year-old buddy from Kansas come down to crew me. They'd never been to a running <laughs> event in their life. And uh, three days in, unfortunately, the 19-year-old's grandfather passed away and he had to fly back to Kansas. So we were about 150 miles into the race. And my, my cousin, Blake, he was a 15-year-old. I looked at Blake and I said, Blake, you know, Blake's 15. He can't legally drive. Right. <laughs> so I looked at Blake and I said, Blake, I'm not quitting this race. And he looked at me, he goes, Josh, I'm not quitting this race either. He goes, we're going to do this. So literally for the next 150, 160 miles, every, uh, it was like every mile we were seeing each other. So I could keep an eye on him, and mainly, mainly so I could keep an eye on him. And uh, it was just this epic adventure. He had no clue what he was doing. I'd got blisters 25 miles into the race, the balls in my feet, these big blisters. And it's just like, at that point, I've done 100 miles. That was my longest race. And I'm really thinking at that point, like, what, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> what, what did I get into? Because I, I was not good at 50 miles. I was not good at 100 miles. And then I would start off really poorly in this race. And Blake, we get to the hotel. You know, they got motels along the way. There's a $40, $40 a night motels in these small towns. And Blake's over there on his phone, like, Googling how to treat a blister. And he's blowing <laughs> on my feet and buying. It's just this comedy of errors. <laughs> <laughs> about 220 miles into the race we're in uh, Shelbyville Tennessee which is a small town it's, it's all horse farms we're in the middle of nowhere and I'm supposed to see I'm supposed to see Blake I'm supposed to see him like in two miles and two miles came and two miles went and then I was like two miles past that point and there's still no Blake and this is like 3 a.m 3 a.m in the morning he's my 15 year old cousin he's like on loan to me from his family tragically his mother had passed away uh four years before that so I felt like I had to really protect and keep this boy safe and all this stuff. And then I kept going. I was, I was at that point where I, was, I kept going forward. I was like, eventually Blake's going to show up. Eventually Blake's going to show up. And I had my phone. I was calling him. He wouldn't answer his phone. I'd text him. He wasn't answering his phone. And I started, at one point I started to really kind of worry because we're in the middle of nowhere. And uh, he's 15 years old. And I, I had all these fears come over me. I was like, I was like some boys kidnapped him and took him behind the barn and they're taking advantage of him and all this stuff. Or 
he, he had a wreck or all this, all this disastrous things. And I kept, there were so many stars in the sky and I kept looking to him. I, I could see his mom, pick one of the stars to be his mom. And I was just like, please, you know, please, please let Blake be okay. Like, I just need him to be okay. And then I had my horrible Casey Anthony moment where I was just thinking, well, about 112 miles to the finish. Maybe I can just finish the race by myself. And then after the race, I'll report him missing. <laughs> <laughs> but then about that point, I called the phone again and he picked up and he goes, I go, Blake, where are you? He goes, Josh, where are you? He had fallen asleep. And when he woke up, he drove the wrong direction on the course. Uh -huh. So he'd gone maybe an hour the wrong way. So finally he found me, we gave each other this like 12 minute long hug that lasted forever. And we ended up finishing the race, uh, which was pretty amazing um, because he got pulled, he got pulled over by the police or the sheriffs like three times during those days, asking what he was doing parked on the side of the road in the middle of the night. He had all these coolers in the back seat full of Gatorade and stuff. They never mm. asked to see his ID. He never asked to look through the coolers. Wow. They just said, well, good luck. So uh, it was an adventure. And uh, I swore to never do it again. And then I did it the next two summers. <laughs> so you've done it a few more times since then, though. Last year when Badwater got canceled the week before, I drove there and did, I drove cross-country last year to do it. Yeah, and last year you cut 60 hours off your time from 2011. I still had a horrible race, but yeah. Yeah, so for everybody listening, we, you know, we looked it up, like I said, some numbers. 10-day cutoff, your first time, 192 hours. So it's eight days. Um, and then in 2020, cut 60 hours. Um, and to me, the big thing that jumps out, to, it just, it's one of those mind-blowing things that you go, especially when you have blisters, how do you finish this? But then I'll also remind myself, right, this is the, this is the same guy that showed up at the first marathon with the $35 sneakers and, you know, board shorts and a white beater and lost all 10 toenails. Like it's not impossible. I think one of the things that you've been so good at both with run it fast and just what you're doing is showing people that it can be done. And I hope everybody catches that mm -hmm. versus thinking, I don't know how he does it. I could never do that. Uh, it's just amazing. Man. He suffers well. You do well, I suffer well. I, I try to always remember, and I think it's good for people to remember that there's always people watching you. There's always people looking for the example you set. There's always people looking at you to how you respond to adversity and stuff. And if I don't, if they see me and I'm doing it poorly, they're going to take that from me. And they're, they're probably not going to have as much confidence as they should in, in themselves, which is unfair to, to them. But I just try to really, in the races I take on, try to lead by example and finish them. And I have a lot of ugly finishes. I have a lot of finishes. I have more finishes probably near the back of the pack than I do during the front. But I also like to maximize my effort as well and try to improve as a runner. I went back to Rocky Raccoon last year, last uh, February, where I finished my first, it was my first hundred where I was 29, 47, went back and I took 10 hours off it. I was 19, 42. And if you would have told me that when I did that, the first time I wouldn't believe it. I remember the first year, the first time I did it and people were, I heard people were breaking 24 hours there. I was like, how is that humanly possible? Like, how are they doing that? I love the challenge of seeing how good I can become at the different distances. Of course, I'm competitive with the other people in the race, but the person I'm the most competitive with is myself mm -hmm. because that's the person, that's me. That's the closest competitor to me is me and what I've done before. And I know that bar. I know I want to go out there and beat myself. I just, I mean, and eventually there's going to be a point where you, as we age, where you won't be able to do that, but you can still give your maximum effort and maximum ability every time you go out there. 
because probably the reason I finished uh, Rocky the first time and Ball State and all this stuff was I knew the low that I wouldn't be able to, to outlast would be the low if I quit that race, the low I would have for the next week, the next two weeks, the next month had it eaten at me. And I knew that would be way more painful than if I was out there for another 10 hours and just finished the race. It's good. So good. It's good. It's real. That's awesome. Our motto that we have is just show up and we try to echo it. And like I said at the beginning, we're here to help people take their next step. And it's cool to hear your steps along the way. But man, just show up plays into not only, obviously, you've showed up to 274 races, right? But even throughout then, just talking us through how you continue to show up in those moments in the race. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've talked about a few times. We really appreciate it. Obviously, it's great when people go out and run an incredible race and they win. But to your point earlier, sometimes the most impressive is the person that guts it out to come in in last place. And uh, I love the fact that that's the standard you hold yourself to. Is well, usually the, usually the people that are enduring the most and doing the most impressive thing are the people at the back of the pack. They're the people that are overcoming cancer. They're the people overcoming addiction or losing 100 or 200 pounds. Say at a marathon, you know, your typical marathon, you have someone finishing in 2, 215 to 230, whatever, and winning it. If you talk to those guys, they can't imagine the people that are out there for six hours on their feet for that long. Mm -hmm. The longer you're out there, it's, it's not easier the longer you're out there. But those are the people that are doing things. And the guy who wins the race or the woman who wins the race, they know they can run 26 miles or 13 miles or whatever it is. It's the person in the back that has all the doubts. They have the abusive parent in their head from their childhood who's telling them that they're worthless and they can't do anything. And they're the ones who are finishing these things, which to me are really amazing. And people see me and I always tell people, when I, I'm very honest with people, someone, someone like that who's overcome something. I'm like, you really inspire me. And they're like... <laughs> They like kind of scoff and like, yeah, how's that possible with all you've done? I'm like, I'm like, you just understand, you know, I see, I see what you've been through. I've seen the, what you've overcome. And it takes a lot more to do that than for me to do a lot of things I've done 200 times. I, I, I agree 100%. I think you're spot on. Um, it is very inspiring when you talk to people um, at all different levels within the race. I mean, there are obviously people who have done really, really well in races and they have incredible stories. And then um, mid-pack, backpack, um, I think just about everybody participates um, has a, a story of why they're there in the first place. And then some people get really, really good at it. Right. It's good though. Well, then you have a lot of these people, you know, the, the people who've lost 150, 200 pounds and go and do a half marathon or marathon. They're the first person from their family or their circle to do that. Oh, yeah. And they'll go back and somebody, one of their friends or one of their cousins will see them and be like, hey, he or she did that. And if they did that, I should be. It's kind of like my experience when I was at, at Disney World as a, uh, in the park and I see people. I was like, if they can do it, I can do it. And it, a lot of times it just takes someone seeing that someone else can do it to mm -hmm. inspire them to do it. Like with a lot of the Run It Fast stuff, one of the great things is we have a lot of people who'll do like a half marathon. They have their half marathon buddies or whatever. And then one of those people will go do a marathon or an ultra and they'll finish it. And they'll be like, Hey, that's the same person I was buddies mm -hmm. with at the half marathon. If they can do it, I can do it. But a lot of times those people in the back go back to their own communities and circles and inspire. Like if you look at my, if we compared Facebook mutual friends, we'd probably have like 400 of the same people. But for those people, they might not know anybody else who's done a half marathon right, or a right. marathon. And when they post about it or, or talk about it, they, they, they have an influence they don't realize they have. And they might not ever be acknowledged that they inspired someone to do it, but often you do. Uh, it's contagious. It is, but it's interesting. So it's actually, I'm, I'm forgetting how many episodes it is now when yours comes out. 
Um, but Pat Dunlap, who we just had on the show, lost 195 pounds. Mm -hmm. He's working his way to his first hundred. And to your point, one of the first thing he said is, I don't know anybody that does what I want to do. I wanted to become that guy and the impact that he's making for exactly what you said. He's reaching people that most of us who share all the same friends won't. And it's, it's just incredible. That's awesome. Yeah, I was, I mean, like I said, I was the first person in my group to do all these things and to, to move up the ladder, but I've also been a really good athlete most of my life. I don't, I inspire people. I hear I inspire people, but I don't have a really cool story. Like a lot of those people who've overcome a lot of lost a lot of weight or have overcome cancer or disease or abusive household growing up and they have they have so much power and so much influence and a lot of them don't realize it or are afraid to share it because they might be a back of the packer or or not just have confidence in sharing their story i'll tell you what man you've built quite the story for yourself and you are inspiring a lot of people and um i can't tell you how grateful we are that you spent the time with us you know tonight let us pick your brain and hear some cool stories um for everybody listening so it's you're on Instagram at Joshua Holmes at run it fast. You can go to runitfast.com. Check it out. Uh, how, how many members do you have? Uh, over a thousand. Just I under believe. a thousand. Just under a thousand. Okay. Yeah. Well, so, so go check out the, the run group, make it a thousand, <laughs> but um, you're doing some really cool things over there. Is there anywhere else that people should find you or follow you besides what I just mentioned? You know, Instagram is the best place. If, especially if people want to reach out to me, uh, you know, at Joshua Holmes, as you said, I'm on, I'm on Facebook and uh, all the other things uh, you mentioned. Except, except TikTok, TikTok, except Snapchat, <laughs> except most of the things that could get me in trouble. Right, right. All right. Well, uh, for everybody listening, go go support Joshua if you're not already, um, because I know you've got a just a, an absolute dynamite community. Mm -hmm. um, for the Ultra Running Guys family, thank you for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please, you know, follow, share it, um, tell your friends. Not uh, because we want to grow so much, but because we'd love to continue to help people make the next step and hear stories like Joshua. So, uh, Joshua, thank you so much, man, for spending the time with us. We really appreciated it. Thank you. I had a blast. All right. And cut. cut. Who am I talking to? Jeremy? Is it yeah, orange? Jeremy, yeah. Wow. Sorry, I guess we should actually introduce. We've never actually done that. We're not going to do that now either. I, mean, I, I tell people I don't run before noon or or below 50 degrees. <laughs> then <laughs> I show up at races. Show up at races that start at 6 a.m. and it's like, you know, 20 degrees. That's why you live in L.A. That's a good place if you don't do less than 50. We know a bunch of your friends. <laughs> we I don't know it. if that's good or bad. Well, I mean, depends on your perspective. I think it's yeah. why it takes me 30 miles to warm up at a race because I'm used to running in the morning. We talked to Andy earlier on the year, and then we, um, Andy Glaze, and then we um, we actually talked to Chris Costman last week. Well, well, compared to compared to Andy, I'm not a runner. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's a that's a good point because we kind of we kind of just cold called you. Most of the people. Um, you know, we kind of had a relationship with beforehand. So one, thanks, you know, for, for jumping on with us. The you first... come highly recommended though. Yeah. That's just it. So you kind of got stuck. You're making us look bad. <laughs> we won't put any of this in. Don't worry. I was saying I got you beat. I saw that there was no runs in North Dakota. That's where two of my kids were born. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. I got Jeremy too. Joshua Nunn in North Dakota. Don't hold it against him. I try not to. <laughs> yeah. I just find you guys as interesting and more interesting than myself, so it's, it's all good. Oh, that yeah. can't be true. No, no, don't do that. Why Stop. Not? Do you want like it? Wait, hold on. <laughs> I got to do it again. He's all right, you ready? This.
<laughs> it's all right. Stop. Maybe that'll work. <laughs> <laughs>